And that's what culture is. Culture is managing behavior, philosophy, and attitude. And now, it's time once again for the show that gives glorious voice to 25 million business owners across the fruited plain. Radio Free Enterprise with Frank Felker. Thank you, Dude Walker. Yes, indeed, I am Frank Felker. Welcome back to Radio Free Enterprise. You know, founding and running a successful business is very difficult. And we often find ourselves focused on whatever it is that's directly in front of us, whatever problem needs to be solved, whatever hurdle needs to be jumped right now. And we can become so focused that sometimes we lose sight of some of the bigger picture items that are really critical to success, things like culture and leadership. But those concepts, uh, can, if you lose sight of them, you can also lose a lot of profitability and lose really what your whole business is all about and what your entire entrepreneurial identity is all about. Culture and leadership are critical to your company's success. And that's why I'm so pleased that today's guest, Brian Philco, was willing to send, spend some time talking with us today. Brian's president and CEO of a multi-million dollar company, Jetco Delivery. And it's a freight hauling company based in Texas that uh, he purchased a few years back and has enjoyed a great deal of success with. He's also the author of the book, Driving to Perfection, Achieving Business Excellence by Creating a Vibrant Culture. And that's what Brian's here to talk to us about today. Brian, welcome to Radio Free Enterprise. Thank you, Frank. It's, uh, it's great to be here, and I really appreciate the invitation. I'm so glad that you're here. I've had a chance to read a great deal of your material and listen to a couple of other interviews that you've done. I think your message is really strong. It's very critical, and I'm so glad to be able to share it with my listeners. Now, as I mentioned, as entrepreneurs, we tend to be very dollars and cents oriented, and sometimes fuzzy ideas like culture and leadership, they sound like high-minded luxuries that, yeah, we can worry about that later after we get our business up and running and firing on all cylinders. But you argue that culture actually drives bottom line results and is something that should be focused on right from the get-go. What makes you say that, and what brought you to that belief in the first place? Well, I guess what brought me to the belief in the first place is I began my career um, actually practicing law, and I went to go work for my favorite client, and they were in the recycling business. Uh, and after a few months in the business, I, I learned that they that, that our company was receiving 10 15 20 percent premiums relative to our competition for a bale of cardboard now wow there is no uh, uh, difference a bale of cardboard is a bale of cardboard I, I can assure you that why were we getting more you know it's, it's just a commodity well they weren't buying our cardboard our customers were buying our culture they were buying integrity that if we delivered, if we promised to deliver uh, a certain amount, uh, our customers could could count on that. Uh, if we promised to produce to a certain quality specification, our customers would, would, would count on that. They were buying the peace of mind that we offered. And that really got me interested in the whole topic of decommoditizing what we do. Let's face it, very few of us, very few of us are in a business where we control the market and we're the only choice. In, in most every business, 
our customers have plenty of choices. And, and unless you enjoy competing on price and enjoy getting work at the bottom dollar, you have to figure out a way to decommoditize yourself. And that's your culture. That's the convergence of your people and your process. That's something that nobody else has. And I would take it a step further, and I would ask your, I would ask your listeners just to, just to think about this question. Have, have you ever had a customer say, I can buy the same product across the street for less money, but I choose to buy the product from you? Now, I'll bet you everybody that's listening right now is nodding in agreement. Yeah, I've heard that before. So then the question is, why? Why would an economically rational person pay more for the same widget they can get across the street? And when I'm in a, giving a presentation, I'll ask people why. And what they'll say is because of our reliability, because of how we deliver our service, right? That you can, because of our shipping methods, whatever the answer is, it's something. It's something that's their secret ingredient, their mystique that allows them to successfully rise above the pack and decommoditize the business. And that, no matter what the answer, no matter what the answer, it lies in their culture. It's tied to the culture. It's tied to the unique way that that business, that that successful business executes its, its uh, product or service delivery in a way that's better uh, than the competition. Because, again, there's just no fun. Uh, it's no fun competing on price. And, and your culture is the difference. Your culture is your difference that lets you compete on a different level. You know, that is just powerful, powerful statement. I, uh, you know, I heard you say uh, economically rational person. Uh, I take it you must have had to study economics as part of uh, your pre-law and your law degree. Uh, my degree is in economics. And when you talk about commodities and, and competing on a tenth of a penny per unit, uh, you're absolutely correct. There's the whole um, definition of a commodity is there's there's no differentiation between one and the next. And I'd never thought of the company's culture and how that impacts the customer's buying experience being a competitive differentiator. But you've made the point very clearly. I, I think that's great. And and one of the things we're going to have to do through this conversation, Brian, is we're going to have to quickly move from one thing to the next because I know that you and I could talk forever about this. So I think a great segue right out of that is, can you give me, you, you gave a great example there of buying bales of uh, cardboard. I take it it's uh, recycled bales of cardboard, or is that a cardboard manufacturer? No, uh, actually, I was in the recycling business. So we would collect cardboard and uh, bale it. So there, it was recycled bales of cardboard that then a paper mill would buy and make into finished product again. You know, mm -hmm. and if, if, uh, if they weren't receiving... Uh, our feedstock, uh, their, their, their pulp was, were shut down. So they paid a premium to know that they were going to always have paper coming through when they needed it. It was the peace of mind that we sold and the peace of mind that commanded the premium, not anything special about our bales of cardboard. I understand. And, and I think it's also fascinating that the paper companies are in a commodity business as well. I, I was in the printing business for a long time which could uh, and uh, 
is sold or, or different printers sell it as a specialty or a commodity, but I've purchased a lot of paper in my time and uh, I just think it's fascinating. I love that example because hard to find a commodity uh, that is of seemingly less value than cardboard, especially recycled cardboard. But can you give me a couple of other examples of companies that we may have heard of where this type of culture is having an impact on their bottom line? Let me give you, let, let me do a comparison and contrast for you. Um, in, in the past couple of years, I was fascinated um, by CVS Pharmacy's decision to stop selling tobacco. Um, because that took courage. They gave up over $2 billion, that's with a B, in sales on tobacco. Wow. And they said, look, our mission is to help people get better and to promote wellness. And selling tobacco is um, inconsistent with that. So there's a company that had leadership and had courage to say that our values Right, and culture is based on values. Culture is based on your company's non-negotiable set of values. And so, if they're, you know, I'm not here to tell you what your values should be. I know what my company's values are, but all I can say is that once you've locked in on your values, there is no compromising. There is no looking the other way. And here's a here's a company whose leadership said our values are to help people get better. Cigarettes take us in the opposite direction, and we will give up the $2 billion in sales. And since then, they've grown. They've outperformed the market. But even at a large level like that, the decision to give up $2 billion uh, in, in sales is, is, is value-based. It has to be value-based. And again, that, that's an example, I think, of a company who stuck to its values and stuck to its culture. Now, let's contrast that for a minute to Volkswagen. Volkswagen, the trouble they got in uh, late, late last year, that wasn't some innocent mistake. Volkswagen deliberately installed software in certain of their diesel-powered uh, uh, diesel cars to deceive regulators about its emissions because the emissions Without the, without the uh, cheating software, uh, the emissions were not up to standard. Now, there, there's a company that made a decision somewhere. I don't know what level the decision was made, but I can't believe that it was made in, in, at the production plant. I think it had to be made at a pretty high level that we're going to deliberately install this software to cheat in order to sell our products. Now, how would you feel if you were a Volkswagen dealer right now with a damaged brand? How would you feel if you were the owner of one of those cars? The, it, its resale value will, will obviously be impaired. And to my, my knowledge, as we sit here probably six months after the scandal has broken, Volkswagen has not done anything to, re, to redress the problem. So there, there's a great example of a company who made a decision to cheat, and I think is going to pay the price for a long time, um, completely out of line with, with values I would tolerate in my company. I mean, in my company, you know, we're, we're, we're in the trucking business, on-time on delivery is, is important. 
But I'd also be lying to you if I said that we were on time 100% of the time. <laughs> you know, so stuff happens. But when stuff happens, we're not going to say the dog ate my homework. We're going we're gonna to tell our customers transparently what happened, what's the plan to deal with it. And, you know, you gain respect that way. You gain respect when you, when you have a problem and you deal with it with openness and um, uh, transparency and, and a sincere commitment to fix the problem so it doesn't happen again. But I just think the contrast between Volkswagen and CVS is stunning. It's absolutely stunning because it's all about companies that uphold their values and companies that throw their values out the window. Those are great examples, Brian. And I, I think it's, it's instructive to think about the fact that even though these are multi-billion dollar companies, the difference between them is a very human thing of how they choose to, what their values are, what, what values they've chosen to, uh, to drive their company with. And whether it's at the individual level or the, at the boardroom level of a multi-billion dollar company, as you've just pointed out, those values can drive all sorts of consequences for good or ill. And, 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 and it's, it's how you opened the, this, this, our conversation that this is not just for the, the big companies, which I am using as examples. This is for Main Street. This is, this is for our, our businesses, no matter how big or small they are, uh, our legacy, the way we want to be remembered. Do we want to be remembered as somebody who did things the right way, uh, where the employees felt a sense of transparency and honesty? Do we want to? Do we want to be the guy that was, you know, out out for the quick buck and and you know the heck with everything else? So th this is very much a mainstream value proposition, and the people that think this is fuzzy, feel good campfire stuff are <laughs> they are horribly mistaken. I mean, they're 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 giving up their secret competitive their their best competitive we weapon by ignoring it. This is great stuff. Now. You know, we were just saying that uh, Volkswagen and CVS uh, showed how uh, your values can drive results one way or the other. I often say that just about any example of bad behavior on the part of a human being or a, or a company or a country or what have you, uh, generally there's either fear or ignorance behind that bad behavior. And I noticed that in uh, Chapter 5 of your book, it's titled, Are Your Fears Leading You? And I just would like for you to speak to that. What What do you mean by that? What What is that question driving at? Sure. L l let me Let me uh, answer it a couple of ways. But first of all, you use the word behavior, and mm -hmm. that's what culture is. Culture is managing behavior, philosophy, and attitude. And I'll have I'll have new managers come in and say, "Managing behavior. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. You hired a manager, not not a kindergarten teacher." They've got it wrong. Our job as leaders is to manage behavior and define what behaviors in our companies are acceptable and what aren't. But when we talk about are your fears leading you, what I'm really talking about is this. In order for culture to succeed in any size company, it has to be leader-driven and employee-owned, meaning that you know the push has to come from leadership. Leadership cannot be disengaged in the process. But if leaders are driving it and the front lines don't own it and don't care, you really haven't accomplished anything. So in this chapter, what I'm really talking about is you. You as the leader. 
Are your fears leading you? Look, when you, when you engage and embark um, in an entrepreneurial venture, whether you're an owner or whether you're a manager or a, a, you know, a, a, a senior executive, generally you're all in. You're fully invested, maybe financially, hopefully, probably emotionally. And at some point, you know, your business can become you. You can become your business. And that's where I think you give up the ability to lead with confidence. Um, you know, as leaders, we cast a huge shadow. So if we're letting fear lead us, and my gosh, there's a lot to be afraid of, uh, you know, the, the fear of failure, the fear of losing a big account, uh, the fear of, you know, more and more and more uh, regulation that we have to comply with, um, all these things out of our control, uh, the fear of a good employee leaving and going across the street to a competitor. If you let those fears lead you, then you can't lead. Um, hmm. You know, if there's, if there's one book I if, would recommend to anybody, um, I, I, know every, I know people recommend, uh, you know, the, the Dale Carnegie book, um, the How to Win Friends, but that's not the Carnegie book I'd recommend. The one I'd recommend is um, How to Stop Worrying and Start, start Living. You, mm. read it, you read it today, and it was written in the 1940s. You know, so some of the, some of the stories uh, and some of the language is, is cute. You know, it's a little bit antiquated. But it makes a point. People are people. And, you know, he, he, the, the book deals with different case studies of business people who, who absolutely paralyze themselves, in some cases to the point of irrevocably damaging their health because they were consumed by fear. So the book is about how to manage fears, and I'm telling you it's every bit as relevant today um, as it was then, and it's going to be every bit as relevant in 200 years uh, as it is today because we're, we've been wired this way for, for millennia. And so my point is that... that when you lead, you, you have to understand that you cast a giant shadow. However big of a shadow you think it is you cast, quadruple it. Multiply it by 50. That, that's how big of a shadow you're probably casting. Every move is under the microscope. And do you mean it's under the it's casting a large shadow across the employees? Or what, what do you mean by that? I mean across the employees, that your mm -hmm. every move is watched. Mm -hmm. and, if they, and if they kind of see you down and, and paralyzed by all the fears, many of which, by the way, are really legitimate. They're very legitimate. <laughs> you know, um, you, you've got to learn how to manage that before you can lead um, because otherwise people will take false signals. I love to tell a story. Um, I was out walking uh, my warehouse at one point. Just I, I don't know what I was doing, but I was just deep in thought. My shirt was untucked um, late in the day. And uh, the next day, one of my uh, drivers came and said, hey, man, are you, are you okay? And is, is the company okay? Are we, are we in trouble? Wow. And I'm like, what in the heck are you talking about? Um, and he goes, well, I saw you walking in the warehouse yesterday, and, and your head was down, and you didn't even look up to say hi to me. And and, you know, I was like, oh, man, I, I, was, I was deep in thought. I wasn't paying attention. No, everything is fine. But it, it really 
I never forgot that lesson mm-hmm. because it just how how such an insignificant thing, um, at least what I thought was insignificant, could be perceived by somebody else as, oh my gosh, he's he's upset or the company's the company's in trouble or something. And so I've never ever forgotten that how I show up is uh, um, is critical. And I think that's true for all leaders. And it's not a matter of ignoring your fears. That's naive. It's a matter of learning how to manage your fears so that you can lead aggressively, so that you can lead proactively, and, and not let those normal, natural human fears paralyze you. That's great stuff, Brian. I, you know, you were just talking about the uh, the leaders and the and the followers or the the owners and the employees and their roles in the culture. I recently gave a presentation to a tech startup where I tried to emphasize to the employees that the creation and development of a successful corporate culture in this new startup that they were in would greatly be dependent upon them. And I'm not going to say anything one way or the other, but that's what I said to them about a month ago, and now I'm listening to you. What What is your reaction to me making that statement to them? Yeah, I mean, no, nobody else can do it but the people in that room. Um, well, I meant I said, specifically this was the employees. I was saying to them as opposed to the owners or the, the startup founders who were also present in the room, but the point I was making was that I guess I was just trying to tell them a lot of this is on you guys. Absolutely. You've you got to distinguish between power and authority. Um, authority may be what's on my business card or in my job description. Um, and authority gives me the ability to influence the actions of others. But you got to look at where the power really lies in any organization. And it lies with the people you were talking to, with the front lines, with the mid-level managers. They're the ones that have the power to pull this off and make the culture successful or not. There's no memo, there's no policy that you can write to make this happen. So you're absolutely right. In a healthy culture, it must be um, employee owned and the employees have to have passion around it such that they hold each other accountable to um, live the values of the culture. And quite frankly, when it's really working, they're the ones that are going to lead, weed out the misfits. You don't, mm-hmm. you don't have to do it because your employees are going to weed, weed out the misfits for you. That's great. That's great stuff. And I, there was a phrase you used, uh, leader-directed and employee-owned, or how did you put that? Yeah, leader-driven and employee-owned. Leader-driven you know, and employee-owned. I think that's just a critical little short statement. So with that in mind, how does accountability factor into your vision of, of how corporate successful corporate culture works? Uh, well, you can't really build a culture without, without accountability. Um, but what I like to advise people to do is take that word accountability that we all talk about, but it's a lot harder to implement, and break it into three. There are three kinds of accountability, individual, organizational, and peer-to-peer. Individual accountability is kind of easy. That's that's the type of accountability that you know a well-trained employee chooses to do something otherwise. Their behavior isn't right. It's an individual failure on their part. That's that's the easy one. Organizational accountability means that we as a company have failed to educate our people on the processes for doing their jobs and on the behaviors 
that are um, acceptable in our company. That's great. And if our people don't understand, then how do you hold them accountable? And a lot of times, it's the poor guy holding the bag that gets blamed. We revert to individual accountability because we don't like what we see in the mirror or we refuse to look <laughs> in the mirror. And, and then, the, then the final accountability is peer-to-peer. And that's when you know that you've arrived. Peer-to-peer means that your team is is holding each other accountable. Like I said before, this whole parent-child mentality, I'm going to run to the boss, all that craps out the window because peer-to-peer is in place. So individual, organizational, and peer-to-peer. You've got to think of accountability three ways. It's too complicated of a term to think about in just a one-dimensional manner. You know, I, I worked recently with a company where they've put a lot of uh, investment of resources into creating training manuals and and laying out processes of every aspect of the business. Uh, but an argument could be made that they don't do a very good job of actually communicating the information in the training. They basically just hand over these, you know, black and white printed pages and say, here, read this, memorize it, learn it, live it. And, uh, and then they come back and do the individual accountability. Well, you didn't do what it says on page 43 of the accounting manual. Why didn't you do that? And uh, so can you just in a general sense talk about training or development as a part of your culture? You have to have a culture of um, uh, continuous learning. You know, people aren't going to come in um, on day one and know how you do business. And I think one of the mistakes that we make is we, you know, think about a job interview for a minute. It's all centered around your technical ability to do the job at hand. And obviously, you've got to be technically competent or we don't need you. But that's just the beginning. You've got to be aligned with the values. We need to spend more time in our interviews looking for cultural fits and having employees who are trained to ask questions to determine whether there's a cultural fit or not, uh, because good employees, technically trained employees, you can find pretty easily, quite frankly. But finding the ones who have the behavior and the characteristics that you need, that, that that's more difficult. And as far as um, those 600-page handbooks you get, mm-hmm. uh, introduce me to somebody that's read one. I, I don't <laughs> I, I what we did is we let our employees write the handbook. That's mm. how you that's how you merge accountability with handbooks. Look, you have to have processes. You can't have a company that that that, that doesn't have process driven. It's the way that you you institutionalize your learning. But these big handbooks, you're right. Nobody reads, and then you're in trouble for not remembering page forty seven, as you said. Mm-hmm. But if the handbook is simple, understandable, written and owned by your employees, the chances of those processes being ingrained in the company are a lot better than the usual, you know, here, here's the handbook, there's the bathroom orientation. <laughs> That's great. I love that. And I would love to, at some point in the future, uh, interview you again on nothing but the topic of uh, doing a job interview that's focused on culture match, but we'll have to leave that for another day. Wonderful. Uh, yeah, that's a great one. Now, quickly, now, chapter nine of your book is titled Never Waste a Good Crisis. I love that title. What does it mean? Well, it means that our every one of our businesses will go through some sort of cyclical period of boom 
and then a period of adversity. And when we go through adversity and we have a, maybe an economic crisis or a market-driven crisis on our hands, that's the time to really look at the company and make change. Uh, and, and that might mean redu you know, reducing people where you were willing to look the other way in other markets. I, I'm not saying it was right to, that it was ever right to look the other way, but let's face it, we all do. Sure. Um, so that when you're, when you're in a crisis, it's the time to clean house. It's the time to reinvent yourself. It's the time to go build new markets. It's the time to do things that maybe you were too busy to do when, when everything was booming and you could barely keep up with demand. And what's, what's, what's kind of sad is that when, when we get into a crisis, and again, it's not a matter of uh, um, if, it's a matter of when, instead of heading for the hills, um, you use this as a time to, to plant and, 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 and pave the way for a better tomorrow by upgrading. For example, if you're in a period of high unemployment in your, in your city or in your geography, well, strikes me as a good time to hire good talent, not when everybody's mm -hmm. working. Mm -hmm. and, and so you have to be a little contrarian. And also when there's a crisis and people in your company see that um, you know their neighbor got fired, their cousin got fired, they didn't get fired. They're lucky to have a job. You also have a way of, of if you're transparent with your employees, of creating un, unprecedented alignment that will create goodwill for years and years to come because you treated me right when I saw the rest of the world just treating people like numbers and, 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 and firing them. That's so great. You got to use the crisis to your advantage because if you do, you're going to come out stronger. And if you don't, you might not survive. That is wonderful. Great stuff. Brian, I want to, I want to wrap up with this. I really appreciate all the time and wisdom that you've shared with us today, but because of the success that you've had, in effect, decommoditizing what are essentially commoditized industries like waste management and the company you're currently in freight hauling, I, I understand that you've uh, increased the size of your business or uh, built your sales by over six-fold since you acquired the company in 2006. Is that right? Yes, that's correct. Well, clearly, you know what you're talking about here. This is not just uh, theory coming from the ivory tower. What you're talking about works and impacts the bottom line. Can you give us like one thought, to, to one last pearl of wisdom that a listener could use, take back to their business tomorrow morning and start implementing to get their culture going in the right direction and, and start trying to recreate the type of success that you've seen? Sure. You know, a lot of the detail uh, is covered in, in my book, um, Driving to Perfection. And the whole book ignores theory and focuses on these kinds of things. Practical, easy, how-to. So the first thing I'd say is that, you know, make sure that when you are going through your ideas, have them prioritized and focus on the easy, high-value ideas. Difficult, high-value ideas take too long when you're getting started. Now, you're talking about cultural ideas? What sort of ideas are you referring to? Well, cultural cultural ideas, yes, and, and including ideas that will fuel your growth because, Ultimately, that's what we're talking about here is, is that, you know, your culture is your ticket um, to, to growth and to an unparalleled customer experience. So you come up with 100 ideas and you'll be paralyzed by all those ideas. <laughs> you, you've got to come up with, with um, uh, 
easy, high-value ideas. And one example I like to give, now admittedly, this isn't in the growth arena, but I think it will make my point. Um, when I bought my company, we were having um, you know, some workers' comp losses that we shouldn't have been having. So we could have written you know, a couple hundred pages of policy, but with my extensive background, I, I'll tell you what I did. I went to Best Buy, I bought a big screen TV, and I put it in the middle of the office. And I said, if we go a whole quarter without a lost time injury, somebody's going to win it. Everybody, wow. la everybody laughed. And they said, the um, TV will be there in 10 years. And we gave away eight TVs in a row, eight quarters in a row. Oh, that's fantastic. And the whole point is that it didn't take a, a lot of brain power. It was a simple, easy, easy idea got our team focused around a goal as opposed to, um, you know, a million goals that you can't achieve. The other thing is that people, you know, we, we live in the Twitter world, right? We have 140 characters now. So people don't have the patience for complicated ideas that, you know, we'll wait five years to see how they come. You've got to have ideas where people can see progress and celebrate those those milestones. And, and above all, this cannot be dictated. If it's dictated, it doesn't work. The ideas that you're going to uh, implement, these easy high, these easy high value ideas that I talk about, have to be owned by the team. Have to be, there has to be broad understanding from the, from the boardroom all the way at the front lines about where we're going, mission alignment. Because if you don't have that, you don't have metrics that anybody can measure against. And people want to be part of something. They don't want to punch a clock. Punching a clock and just showing up for work is, 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 is a sign that you've got a disengaged workforce. They know how to fix problems and solve challenges better than you. You know, your front lines know where the opportunities lie. They know where the efficiencies lie. They know where the problems lie. If you only involve them, in your most critical mission, and in this case, let's say it's corporate growth, you'll 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 unlock hidden talent that you don't even know you have. So it's a matter of involving the front lines, having a line team, keeping the ideas easy, measurable, high value, and then you can get into the more complicated, high dollar, complex value, uh, complex ideas once you've won the team over to the fact, hey, this stuff really works. That is just great stuff. Thank you so much for that. And I will have a link to uh, your book uh, on the show notes page for this episode of Radio Free Enterprise. But if somebody wants to uh, talk to you further about this, about corporate culture, I know that uh, you do a lot of uh, seminars and presentations for Vistage and for individual corporations and so forth. What is the best way for them to connect with you? Um, the best way is going to be my email, which is Brian, B-R-I-A-N, at Brian Filco, B-R-I-A-N-F is in Frank, I-E-L-K-O-W.com. Um, I've also got a website by that name, you know, brianfilco.com. And I'm really active on uh, LinkedIn, too. And all they've got to do is connect with me on, on LinkedIn. Um, so there, there's plenty of ways to get in touch. And, you know, I'm always glad to brainstorm, always glad to share ideas. And, and um, you know, obviously, I'm, I, uh, I'm doing a, a limited number of 
speaking engagements every year, and, and they're still I'm still taking some some engagements for the back half of this year. So very very interested to work with your listeners in, in any capacity that makes sense. Great. And I'll put links to all of those things as someone named Frank Felker would know, Brian Filco. Yes. People don't <laughs> always get uh, your name spelled right. So I will, uh, I'll have the links directly to your email and your website. And uh, uh, I think people can find you on, uh, find you on LinkedIn, but I'll put a little link there as well that goes to your profile. Uh, and that'll make it easy for people. So thank you so much, Brian. I really could not thank you enough for all of the wonderful ideas and, uh, experience that you brought to us today on Radio Free Enterprise. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Thanks again to Brian Philco, and thank you for listening. Now, what we need to do next is you need to go to the iTunes store and subscribe to the Radio Free Enterprise podcast. While you're there, maybe you leave me a little review. Maybe you leave me a little five-star rating. Just say it. After that, come back to RadioFreeEnterprise.com and register with the site so you can stay on top of all the exciting doings here at RFEHQ. If you promise to do that for me, I promise to remain your fearless host, Frank Felker. Until next time, I'll see you on the radio. It's like catching Frankie in a bottle. Radio Free Enterprise. We pulled in just behind the bridge. He lays her down. He frowns. Gee, my life's a funny thing. Am I still too young?